And the impact of these, these past two years could be stress, anxiety, depression, uh, disconnection. And while an overarching theme we've talked about being the great resignation, I believe that's an outcome of the great disconnection. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast for professional speakers. We cover the ins and outs of the business, helping you deliver more impact on bigger stages at higher fees. You'll gain an inside edge through intimate conversations with the world's most successful keynote speakers. Mic Drop is brought to you by eSpeakers. I'm your host, Josh Linkner. Get ready for some inspiring Mic Drop moments together. Today's show is sponsored by Impact 11, formerly known as Three Ring Circus, the best and most diverse and inclusive community built for training and developing professional speakers. They're not just elevating an industry we know and love, they work with hundreds of speakers to launch and scale their speaking businesses, earning tens of millions in speaking fees, landing bureau representation, securing book deals, and rising to the top of the field. To learn more and schedule a free intro call, visit impact11.com. That's impact-e-l-e-v-e-n.com. Mic Drop is produced and presented by eSpeakers. If you want more audiences and organizations to be moved and changed by your message, you owe it to yourself to find out why thousands of top experts use eSpeakers to manage and grow their business. When you use eSpeakers, you'll feel confident about your business, package yourself up for success, and be able to focus on what matters most to you and your business. For more information and a free 30-day trial, visit eSpeakers.com forward slash mic drop. That's eSpeakers.com forward slash mic drop. Today's show is about connection. Human connection in an increasingly digital and isolated world the connection between broadcasting and keynote speaking, and the connection that today's guest is having with audiences around the world. In this episode of Mic Drop, I sit down with Riaz Megji, a human connection expert and author of the book, Every Conversation Counts, The Five Habits of Human Connection That Build Extraordinary Relationships. He's also an accomplished broadcaster with 17 years of television hosting experience. He's interviewed experts on current affairs, sports, entertainment, politics, and business. In my conversation with Riaz, we cover the elements from broadcasting that can be applied to keynote speaking, such as the effectiveness of silence and the power of pacing. How to create deeper connection in a remote keynote by creating a virtual green room and keys from Riaz's research on human connection, such as making our small talk bigger, listening without distraction, putting aside our perfect persona, assertive empathy, and making others feel famous. How can we build deeper, more authentic connections with our keynote clients, audiences, team members, and bureau partners alike? If these questions are on your mind, you won't want to miss today's episode. Riaz, welcome to Mic Drop. So good to be here, Josh. Thanks for the invite. Uh, so excited to spend some time with you. As, as always, I just always enjoy our conversations. And um, I'd love for you to maybe uh, give us a little bit of an introduction for those that don't know you, um, a little bit about your background and, and what you speak about and kind of the state of your speaking business today. 
Yeah, thanks. thanks. Thanks for the question for context. You know, for the past two decades, I've kind of done what you're doing right now. So I've worked as a television broadcaster uh, in Canada, interviewing people from all walks of life for mainstream television here up north. And uh, a few years back, uh, credit to Three Ring Circus slash Impact 11, switched out of TV to focus on speaking full time. So the space that uh, I get to serve in is really on the powerful you know, opportunity of meaningful human connection and building relationships. And I see a lot of themes right now with companies and conferences of the power of connection, connecting with purpose, uh, collaboration is a big one and how we just humanize our spaces, whether it's with our teams or organizations, even with our loved ones. So professionally speaking for about eight years, but full time the past three after making the switch out of television to now uh, the stage and virtual stages as well. That's fantastic. Well, congrats on your success. What percentage of your business is in your native country of Canada versus either here in the U.S. or or other parts of the world? Mm. Most of the business right now is North America. I would say about 70% of it is up north in Canada. There was, um, there was a nice push with the transition of the familiar, familiarity with broadcast in Canada to create that sense of trust of, oh, hey, I know Riaz, let's bring him in and, you know, let's connect. And over the past three years and, and really taking the speaking business seriously and starting to network and learn and keeping this beginner's mindset of how this business works, I think one of the things that blew my mind was when I first came to uh, an Impact 11 event, which was Three Ring Circus back in the day, and hearing you describe there's 150,000 events in the U.S. every single year. And it's such a different market, the States versus Canada, and exploring how to get on these stages. Uh, and when you get that opportunity, how to deliver the best value, best experience possible so that word of, word of mouth creates this domino effect. So it's Canada strong. It's been building in the States. And, you know, there's the occasional virtual one that's happened worldwide as well. So as you mentioned, you spent you know your the the bulk of your career on camera and 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 in in broadcast. Now you're on stage. What are some of the things that helped you become strong on stage? Not just from a performance standpoint, but helping your your business thrive as a as a professional speaker that you learned from the world of broadcasting. Mm. Well, one of the first things that really stood out to me, and this was apparent in the virtual world, where there was this great discomfort with silence. And what I noticed on live television, especially, I'll give you an example. For, for 10 years, uh, I did a mainstream morning show called Breakfast Television here in Vancouver, BC, where, where I'm joining you from today. And when you do a morning show, it's almost if people choose to let you into their living room, you are wallpaper on the background as they are going through the motions to get their day started. But the interesting part of the effectiveness of silence, anytime there is an intentional pause, People will stop in their tracks and be like, what happened? What, what went wrong here? Because when you hear that constant stream of noise, you do, it, it almost just becomes, you know, white noise in the background. So I found intentional pausing was really powerful in the live realm to understand the power of pacing. And whether that be a five to seven minute live interview on television or a direct, you know, presenter to audience at home and then bringing that to the stage. One of the things that I found, especially in the virtual realm, because we all know when depending on the platform, depending on the connection, we could throw out a, a, a thought provoking question. And there is that pause and being OK with that. And then actually the television producing background, one of the things that I do, especially when virtual events are still happening 
I'll talk to the producers beforehand and say, hey, who's hosting this event? Like, who's your MC? And making sure not only have we done all the discovery calls on content, but connecting with the MC so I bring them in for the Q&A so it feels like, oh, this is a co-host. So while we throw the question out, it's okay to have that silence, but then having that contrast of voice with the MC to know that they're answering the question there's a great dialogue happening and then you bring in the audience. So then it almost feels like a talk show in the virtual realm with the Q&A. And I found those kind of producing aspects on the broadcast level really helped enrich the experience when we were trying to connect virtually with an audience. That's such great advice. I, you know, I've, I, I think the pause is underused and so deeply powerful. Miles Davis once said that it's not the notes you play, it's the notes you don't play. And it's that white space that you create in between the art that really brings, brings the magic to life. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, so it's, even though you have, have spoken to audiences for years, it really is, of course, a different medium when, when you're on television, uh, when you're on stage, and now, now on virtual. What are some of the differences that you, or adaptations, I should say, that you, you've, you made going from on stage, and I know obviously you're still in, in, in person on stage, uh, compared to when you do a virtual event? How should we be thinking about optimizing for on stage versus virtual? Yeah, I'll start with virtual. You know, I was doing an event yesterday virtually, and um, always like when they say, hey, you want to log in 15 minutes before, I always say to them, how about we log in 30? Because what I try to do in my sessions is create a conversation. If we're talking human connection, it's not just myself. I, I think to myself, how can I include the MC? And one of the elements I do and questions I ask within this keynote is defining conversations. So aside from an event planner call, I'll ask, can I talk to two to three leaders that are prominent in your organization that people would know so I could just understand more context and let's choose one that can participate live. So it's kind of creating the green room effect virtually because when we're live backstage, there's this adrenaline rush, there's chaos, there's production teams. But when you're in a virtual green room, there is an element of tranquility that all the prep's done and now we're just here. And my goal is how to just get that guest, how to get the MC talking so everybody's loose, everybody's comfortable. And then bringing that into the space so the tech team feels comfortable too and running through the deck, even though we've done it before, doing it one last time. And I provide virtually a producer cue sheet because I find some companies are using third-party platforms. So I'll always give them a producer cue sheet as a backup and say, let's run the deck so you understand every cue. So there are no guesses all around. And then knowing what's shared with the leaders and MCs beforehand, they're all set up for success. And then getting a feel of how is this audience engaging throughout the day? Like if you're opening keynote speaker, you'll only get so much. But say for example, yesterday, the opportunity was closing keynote speaker day one, tell me about the day. What resonated, what awards were given out, what type of recognition, and that skill set of working in a live TV environment, when you do that, there is the opportunity to hear something like breaking news, document a few things down quickly, and then riff those on the fly if your foundation is set. And people will be like, wow, this presenter knows us. He, he has been with us. He knows the through line. So I think that's a great opportunity, the virtual green room of just giving yourself more time before you go live. And, you know, that, that age old adage of when we're doing it in person, um, even if I'm the afternoon speaker, 
doing my best uh, when they say, hey, do you mind if we do this tech check at 7 a.m.? I know you don't speak to one. I just say to them, absolutely. And I say, do you mind if I stay for your opening keynote, your opening plenary session and keynote? Because that sets the tone for the day of what the priorities are for the organization, where they wanna go, what the objectives of the conference are. And those are just great clues to weave into the keynote so people will respect. It's not just about, hey, Riaz, the presenter coming on stage sharing his message. He is listening in, he cares about our message and he's weaving it into what he's going to share to motivate our audience too. I love it. I mean, a couple of key takeaways from, from all that, you know, it's, it's making sure that you're not just that you're prepared, but your host is prepared to alleviate yeah. any concerns or snafus. The notion of you being present and, and more, even more than the contract demands so that you can understand the nuances and, and, and be really participate to make sure that your, your message is relevant and on point to that audience, I think it's crucial. And, uh, and, and it's a willingness to serve and, and it's sort of a heartfelt approach that I think is, is, it's no surprise that you're continuing to, to thrive out on, on the circuit. Um, with that in mind, I'd love to switch gears for a minute. You know, your, your book, which, um, uh, is about every connection counts that the five habits of, of human connection that built extraordinary relationships. Um, it's an excellent book. Everyone listening should should immediately buy a copy. But um, I would love to actually just have some fun with you. Maybe let's go through them one at a time, these five big ideas. I would love, for, if you don't mind, like share the idea, maybe reflect on what we speakers can learn from that idea and, and how we might apply it to our speaking business. We'll pause a little bit and chat, and then we'll go to the next one. So kind of rinse and repeat five little mini segments on the body of work that you've so masterfully shared with the world. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Like this whole message behind uh, Every Conversation Counts really speaks to the challenge that exists right now. Um, and I, I believe US, uh, the U.S. health firm Cigna, their loneliness index put this in powerful perspective over, over the last couple of years that loneliness is costing companies $154 billion annually and lost productivity due to stress-related absenteeism. And the impact of these, these past two years could be stress, anxiety, depression, uh, disconnection. And while an overarching theme we've talked about being the great resignation, I believe that's an outcome of the great disconnection. So how can we elevate this sense of humanity, this sense of vulnerability, uh, and above all, this sense of connection when we're building relationships, whether that's within our teams or within our clients? So the concept of this book was to do a deep dive of this challenge of loneliness, not only in North America, but all around the world, and then unlock five key habits that would help people break through this uh, in intentional ways. Truly, all of us getting out of autopilot mode, which we may have been in pre-pandemic, and getting intentional with how we reach out and check in. Such a great summary. Let's dive in if you're cool with it. What's, what's habit number one? Yeah, habit number one is all about making our small talk bigger. And the interesting thing about small talk is anytime I talk about this concept on the stage, I can see a, a smirk appear on people's faces because they're just thinking, well, yeah, we don't like small talk. And, and maybe that was the, the silver lining of the pandemic. We could avoid the superficial conversations that would just be about the weather or maybe about, hey, what's going on with the vaccine or what's going on with the big game and missing out where people are truly at. And the challenge I like to introduce for audiences is that maybe we looked at small talk as this defense mechanism that prevented us from the embarrassment of getting emotional in front of someone that we don't know, or that prevented that fear of hitting a nerve when somebody's truly struggling and we're not 
ready for their emotional reaction. And that is such a huge opportunity to serve. So how we lean in and make our small talk bigger. One of the key uh, tips uh, I encourage to unlock is how we can ask first and talk second. And there's an interesting part of how we can be intentional with our curiosity to truly show people they are interesting. Because everybody is an expert in their own lives. Everybody's an expert in their own industry. And the power of our questions can really show them how interesting they are and focus on less info, more emotion. You know, a great example of this is the late psychiatrist Gordon Livingston. He uh, did phenomenal work on uh, the happiness equation. Because some people then say, well, what if you have no context of the person in front of you and you show up to an event, a boot camp, and your, your intention is to connect, but you don't know what to say? And I think that is, you know, a, a trap to, that, that is a common one for all of us. We, we fall into this trap of trying to say the best thing to impress that person. But what could we ask? And Livingston's work found that the happiest people have three things in common. They have something to do, someone to love, and something to look forward to. Three easy areas, three easy questions to pursue, but that unlocks a high emotional component and not even stopping there. When people start giving you a piece of themselves, how can we still follow and explore their stories, not just answers, because that is where emotion lives. And at the end of the day, whether we're presenting on stage or trying to connect with our teams in a meeting or just one-to-one, emotion is what can connect us. It can, what, it can be the thing that polarizes us, but above all, emotion is what motivates us. So how can we provoke positive emotion in all of our conversations? Yeah, it's such a great, great insight, you know, big talk instead of small talk. And I think it applies in a couple of ways. I love your perspective, you know, from a speaker standpoint. I was at an event recently in Nashville and, um, you know, like we often do, we'll, we'll get down for the sound check and you're sort of hanging out with your core meeting planner. And usually it's, hey, how's the weather? Or, How about the ball game? You know, and and so in this case, I, I it, we, we got into a much deeper conversation about her kid. One of her children struggles with some mental health issues. One, one of my kids does. And, and we really kind of created this, this deeper connection. And I noticed that the interaction and thereafter was totally different, both both leading through the keynote, afterwards, we've since communicated. I think there'll be follow-on work. And I wasn't doing it to get more, more, more business necessarily, but it really did deepen the connection. I think will have an impact uh, on my speaking practice. Uh, the, other, the other insight, I think, small talk versus big talk, is when, when you're giving a keynote, you're to a degree having a conversation. And when you can't necessarily ask somebody a deep, long question, the audience, you know, an open-ended question and, and hear a long response and, and, and issue follow-up questions, I think the notion of going deeper rather than shallower makes a lot of sense. And so if we can establish a deeper connection through the stories that we share or the vulnerability that we offer, um, it does elevate the relationship and of course, in turn, our, our business. Any other insights before we get to point number two of how big talk over small talk can, can impact one's speaking practice? Yeah. You know, as you articulate all of that of talking about that client's uh, relationship with their child, that is so interesting because if we look at common threads of what our, our dialogue consists of on a daily basis. We'll talk about you know, the, the superficial stuff that we've already referenced. We'll talk career, we'll talk health, but where does emotion live? It lives in relationships. So the fact you're able to go there with that client and create a safe space, I think that is the key, a safe space, whether you're one-to-one, -one, especially if you're on a stage of the questions you're willing to ask, how deep you're willing to go. Does there need to be a trigger warning of some of the content that might be really heavy, but be respectful of the audience so you can prepare them for what's coming? Like a great example that I've found has really served audiences when I asked, you know, one of the questions I asked in my keynote is, what is the most important conversation of your life 
that you believe brought you to the point you're at today? This is a huge question to ask somebody on the spot. And this is why when I work with groups that enjoy this idea and say, you know what? This could ignite a quick set intimacy with our audience. Let's do this. I will ask leaders this question before the presentation and find out who is willing to be open? Who is comfortable with it? Because Josh, your definition of safe could be very diff different from my definition of safe. So one, choosing the leader that feels courageous enough to share, and then two, helping set them up for success because there's a lot of nerves saying, hey, if this is what we do on the regular, we're, we're, we're more comfortable in this space. You bring a leader up that's not used to this, they could be nervous, they could forget what they're gonna say. It's how do we set them up for success and make them feel safe, which is very important in this process. So any collaboration ideas a speaker might have, I just say, um, I invite you to think, how can I make set that person up for success and make them feel safe in this process so everybody wins? Perfectly said. What's happened number two? Listen without distraction. And I, I find this one very interesting because if you lead with this sense of curiosity and people start giving you a piece of themselves, th then lies the challenge of we live in this culture of convenience, we live in this culture of efficiency, things are moving so fast, it's easy for our attention to be drawn in so many different places. And when we look at the neuroscience of how our brains work, our brains can absorb four to 500 words per minute. Yet the average person speaks at a rate of about 125 words per minute. So that's why we can get caught up in multitasking. That's why Josh, you and I could be in a conversation in person at dinner and I could look down at my phone and say, yeah, you know, that's great. Okay, that's, that. oh, you did that in your keynote? No way, when's the next bootcamp? Okay, this simple task or, or, or idea, action of having your phone face down on a dinner table, research has proven it impairs your ability to listen by 20%. So step one is how do we combat our distractions? And our distractions will be there. We cannot remove them, but we can level up our awareness of what's getting in the way. And is that technology? Is that the emotional distraction when we disagree with somebody and then shut ourselves off altogether? Um, is that the scheduling that happens at home? And you know, before we went live, we were talking about childcare responsibilities of understanding how we can juggle, how we can get things done uh, so we can do it in a positive way. So combating our distractions is one. The other is how we can over-prepare to improvise. And there's something really key about this. And this was a critical mistake I made as a broadcaster at the beginning of my career. I would research the subject because preparation for any event, whether we're speaking, a big pitch, a discovery call, a big meeting, preparation will give us confidence in the moment. But our ability to lean in, listen, and improvise that's what'll give us connection. I think of the example you just said with the client talking about her child in the relationship, and then boom, you're following her lead. And one of the first questions I would ask in the green room after I would exchange formalities with a guest, which is very similar to being in a virtual green room or backstage with some key players right before you go out to present, if you're just meeting them, it's like, hey, you know, Josh, what's on your mind right now? And I was finding the first thing that would come out of a guest's mouth that was the priority occupying their mental space. And then there was a huge opportunity to follow their lead and deviate from the questions that I thought were great because the mistake I made before was, yep, that was a successful interview because I did the research. I, I came up with what I thought were, were, were brilliant questions and 
Then I started to realize, was this person really seen? Was their message heard? Were they acknowledged the way they needed to be? And that just leads with this sense of being willing to improvise in the moment, because sometimes they'll give you things that you may not expect, but it could lead to a very powerful moment and experience, especially when you're live on stage. Becoming a keynote speaker is an amazing profession. The top performers earn millions in annual income while driving massive impact on audiences around the world. But the quest to speaking glory can be a slow route with many obstacles that can knock even the best speakers out of the game. If you're serious about growing your speaking business, the seasoned pros at Impact 11 can help. From optimizing your marketing and business efforts to crafting your ideal positioning, to perfecting your expertise and stage skills. Impact 11 is the only speaker training and development program run by current high-level speakers at the top of their field. That's why the major bureaus like Washington Speakers Bureau, Premier Speakers, Speak Inc., Executive Speakers, Harry Walker Agency, Kepler, Gotham Artists, and GDA all endorse and participate in Impact 11. From interactive boot camps to one-on-one coaching, if you're looking to take your speaking career to the next level, they'll help you make a bigger impact faster. For a free 30-minute consultation, visit impact11.com forward slash mic drop. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I was speaking with the uh, CEO of a large uh, top five speaker bureau, and I said, what's the one thing that speakers should do better? And, and, and funny enough, she said, listen. And, and I think that means really listening to your client on a briefing call, listening to their needs, understanding the nuances of your audience, being an, being there as a servant, not just as a as a blabbermouth, you know, reciting one's line. So um, I think this notion of listening without distraction is crucial. What's, uh, what's habit number three? To put aside our perfect persona. And th- this is, <clears throat> maybe it's the culture of comparison uh, that we've... Uh, been emerging through these past couple of years of how we show up on social media. Is that the perfect post? Do I need to edit my LinkedIn post? Is it the perfect prose? All of these factors of how we bring a sense of realness and humanity to how we're communicating. Like I love reading your LinkedIn posts of just a a takeaway, a bit of humanity, and it's useful of how we show up. Like I'll never forget when you talked about the idea of, and this is before I met you, the, the risks of how we overthink uh, the risks we might take to do something new, but never underestimate the risk of standing still. That to this day, before I met you, I thought, I want to learn more from Josh Linkner because th- th- there are things to offer, but that takes a bit of courage to, to, to stand up and share a bit of yourself. And one of the most impactful conversations I had was years back with Darren Hardy. And I love his book, The Compound Effect. I know he's been a mentor to CEOs around the world. And I had 10 minutes in the room after an event Darren presented at in Whistler, British Columbia. And I said, and Darren's interviewed some of the greats in this world. And I said, Darren, look, what is your secret? What is your secret to getting people to open up? And he said two words that resonate with me to this day. And he said, it's simple, man, go first. And I said, Go first. I'm like, okay, tell me about this. And he said, if you want to motivate somebody, go first and find out what motivates them and help them achieve that. And then I think about this world we've been living in, this hybrid reality over the past couple of years. And what about those people that have been virtually onboarded, never met somebody in person, have this high level of anxiety, lack of sense of belonging. You could be the leader in the room, 
that goes first and talks about your first day on the job and what you felt and how difficult it was. And then immediately you start to create a safe space where it's okay for that person to open up. Uh, being that person in the audience, if you see a message and you're hearing a message from a speaker that really resonates, how many times have we been in the room and the speaker throws out a really powerful question and now that we're coming back together in person and Canada has been a bit slower than the States, people are looking around the room of, should I put my hand up? I don't want to be judged. I don't want to say the wrong thing. But the idea of going first with that question can break the ice so everybody feels safe to ask questions and then a powerful conversation ensues. So that idea of uh, putting aside our perfect persona is one, going first, but two, with the degree of vulnerability, because some people then say to me, Josh, what's the difference between vulnerability and oversharing? And there is a fine line and there's a psychological concept known as the pratfall effect, where it's important for us to convey credibility before vulnerability. Because if we've earned that, if we've done that work to, to, to be that uh, authority and expert on a topic, our ability to go first with vulnerability can then draw people closer. But if they see us on stage and they're questioning our competence to begin with, and then we floor the gas pedal with that vulnerability, it can almost backfire and create distance instead of connection. So I think that's important for us to keep in mind as a leader in team meetings, as a speaker on the stage of how can we convey credibility uh, before vulnerability, but above all, just have the courage to show up in bigger ways. Yeah. You know, again, I, I'm just loving all, all of these habits. The, the notion of putting aside that perfect persona is so key. You know, we study likability among speakers and and the speaker that comes out there and has never made a mistake in their life and everything's perfect and they're sort of condescending and arrogant. Um, you hate that person. Nobody likes that. You know, whereas if somebody is warm and, and, and willing to be a bit vulnerable, not to your point at the expense of their credibility, but but but, uh, you know, in, 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 in honorance in, in honoring that, that none of us are perfect. Um, that's the person you fall in love with. And I, I completely agree that that applies both on stage and off stage on either side of an event. Um, so I love the momentum here we're sharing. What's what's habit number four? Habit number four uh, builds on this notion of courage of how we can show up and lean in and just be assertively empathetic. And some people hear this and they're like, assertive and empathetic? Is that even possible? <laughs> and I believe this starts with intention because if we look at, Difficult colleagues, difficult conversations, and are we leaning in when things get uncomfortable? One of the points of research that really stood out to me was Vital Smarts, this leadership training company that found over the past couple of years, one in four leaders avoids difficult conversations for up to six months. One in 10, up to two years. And that in itself, creating these cultures of avoidance, and then you throw in the past two years and the great resignation, if people don't feel that this is a safe space to lean in and talk about the things that matter most, they're going to leave. They're going to retreat. We're going to deal with quiet quitting all around and resentment and culture will crumble. So uh, the idea of assertive empathy, no matter how difficult the conversation is, is how we can start with relationship first, logic second. And I'll give you an example of if we're in this conversation and we're on two ends of an important issue, instead of barging in and trying to posture with our position, how can we lead with the sense of discovery before we dismiss that person? Case in point, using questions that start with how and what. Like, hey, Josh, how, how do you feel this chat went on the podcast? What do you feel is impossible right now in the speaking space? Well, what would make it possible? 
If you had to do the last two years over with your business, with your boot camps, what would you do differently? And then there's that element of humility that no matter how much intention I come in with, I could still be missing something and I could lean in and say, so Josh, what is the question I failed to ask to understand your reality? You know, how could I show up for you in bigger ways? And when we start doing that, the other side realizes, Riaz and Josh, they care about me. We may not see eye to eye, but they care about me. Let's do this together. And then we can start focusing on what we can agree on so they understand, hey, this is the two of us versus a challenge instead of me versus you. So this notion of assertive empathy really involves checking ourselves, uh, checking our emotional distractions that might get in the way and just lead with empathetic curiosity. I wish that we had some more assertive empathy here in the United States political landscape, which is about as hmm. furious and divisive as it gets. Um, but I wanted to understand that concept, which I, I love, by the way. How has assertive empathy helped you in your speaking business? You've made a leap that many listeners want to make. You were, you were full-time in one, one field, and, and now you're a full-time professional keynote speaker. How has this principle helped you become a successful speaker? The biggest benefit of this approach is the realization that I cannot motivate, inspire, or connect with anyone unless I understand them first. And being willing to ask the question, being willing to keep the beginner's mindset, this, this is honestly what I've loved about the space you've created, whether it is on this podcast, whether it's with the boot camps, the community, Everyone maintains this beginner's mindset that no matter how much success you've achieved, sure, you could be deemed an expert to be able to get booked on stage, but the challenge is in an expert's mind, there are limited possibilities. In a beginner's mind, there are infinite opportunities. And I, I think that in itself is just staying curious longer. As a broadcaster, you do it when somebody comes in, you talk politics, when somebody is like, oh man, make sure you grill that guy, which obviously you, gotta, you can't have a safe space without accountability. So keeping people accountable is important, but also staying open without the bias and judgment and assumption and to just lean in and understand what drives the direction you're going and asking these questions to understand somebody before you write them off altogether. And I think that is allowed when somebody understands oh, he, he, he is actually listening to what I'm saying rather than um, just coming at me with, with, with venom. Uh, it opens up a world of possibilities for connection. And I can, again, just, just speculating, but I, I could see that being a driver in, in your launch and, and continued success because you don't come across, like many speakers do, self-congratulatory uh, and braggish and arrogant. You really, you know, you, you are empathetic to those around you, but again, in a confident and assertive manner. So I think that makes a ton of sense. It's definitely connecting for me. So bring us home with, with, with habit number five. This is a fun one, and this is what I, you, one I really love of what organizations can do, and I'm getting excited seeing what organizations are doing to lift their people up. Um, habit number five is how we can all make people feel famous. Mm. And I don't mean this in a superficial way. I mean this in the innate desire, that core sense of belonging we all need right now. And whether you're a presenter on stage or whether you're a leader with your team, what can you do to go the extra mile to allow that person to feel recognized, acknowledged, seen, appreciated? And one of the things that uh, I see is commonplace, even though the intention is pure. I'll give you a, a clear example of somebody could see um, you or I speak on stage and say, oh man, Josh Riaz, great job of you two on that podcast. 
But to me, I'm like grateful for the comment, but there's a sense of curiosity that, that lies there of what does great job mean? Because honestly, if it wasn't a great job, people, they want to avoid resistance and confrontation. They'll probably say great job anyways, just to brush it off. I always uh, invite leaders to think, how can we practice specificity with our praise? So I could easily say, Josh, thank you for the wisdom that you have instilled in all of us speakers and showing us the potential of the market out there. You've not only given me hope, you've given me motivation and your generosity. You are the epitome of generosity always wins. And it reminds me of how I can continue to give back and do the exact same thing. And making that praise specific, making it urgent so we're not waiting till a, a big conference or a town hall to celebrate each other, uh, making it public. We've got all these great social media tools to communicate messaging, but seeing somebody that does something just amazing and calling them up on social media saying, I saw this. This was so good. This is what is changing the game. And this moved me. And above all, making it purposeful. You know, if we're going to give some praise to somebody, how does their contribution connect to the values of the organization, connect to the values of the community? So that person just feels ignited that they're not, do they may not be doing it for praise, but when they're seen in that way, that sense of connection is going to drive retention. It's going to drive loyalty and it's going to just drive a positive engagement where people will be excited to be together again and excited to come back to the office in some cases where companies are struggling to do that as well. Uh, it really resonates with me at an interpersonal level and certainly organizationally, but even taking a step beyond that for, for those listening to, to this podcast, the, the notion of making your audience feel famous. I think mm. one of the mistakes often speakers make is that they think it's all about them, you know, that they're the hero. And, and if, you know, if you're performing a, a rock concert, yeah, you're the rock star. But if you're a great keynote speaker, your audience is the rock star. You're there as a the conduit to make them feel special, to make them feel famous. And so I think that that really makes, it makes a lot of sense. And furthermore, all those throughout the value chain. You know, think about the, 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 the speaker who's a total pain in the ass and, 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 and the bureau agent dreads calling him or her versus the speaker that makes that agent feel famous or makes the client feel famous or makes the customers of the host feel famous or makes the AV people feel famous. So, so just that, that's a really cool benchmark, but if, if you can, if you can make them feel great, you know, your, your success will come as a byproduct. I, I want to build on that because this, this is such a great point from a speaking standpoint of entering the space. As soon as you enter the space as a speaker, I would do this in television as well. If uh, a high profile guest would come in, um, obviously you greet them, but greeting and seeing the eyes, like I know you've talked about this before of a speaker stakes, it takes the stage, make the MC feel famous, connect with them and show that moment instead of, it's almost the throwaway line of, hey, big thanks to you, uh, Josh for the intro here, connect with them on that stage. Um, with AV, connect with them and remember their name because if something goes sideways and hey, when you're live and it's a production, it could, I could say, hey, uh, Yana, I love it. We're live. Anything can happen. Can you help me out instead of next slide, please? Oh, can we get a microphone? And then you could come off as this cold individual. But as soon as you personalize it with that person's name, they'll be like, how does this speaker know everybody in the room? And it shows you made the effort to greet every single person. The speaker isn't the important 
most important person in the production. You're just one person. And sitting in the opening plenary session, one of the things I love to do as well is document what the CEO said, document what um, maybe an organizer said, so you can name check them live during your session. And it feels like you're having a conversation with friends, but this takes intention to remember who's AV, who's the CEO, who's the event planner, what are the conversations that were had at lunch that you overheard, and people will be like, this speaker is so dialed in, they showed up and they're ready to outcare the competition. And I think that's how speakers succeed. That's what I strive to do is uh, champion the message of, with every conversation, how can you outcare the competition? And these little intentional actions can make a profound difference. Mm, outcare the competition, what a, what a great, uh, concept and, and a beautiful sentiment. Uh, and, 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 you know, again, I think that your insights today across these all, all five points and, and your generosity has made us really all feel famous. Um, Riaz, any last thoughts for speakers that are, you know, at various points in their career, some, some listening are, are world famous rock stars making millions of dollars a year. Some are, are earlier on in the journey. Um, maybe just a, a, a final piece of advice that you might, might provide uh, to those of us like you that are, that are deeply passionate and committed to this, to our industry. Yeah, uh, two things that have stood out for me that have helped um, my momentum up on the uh, up until this point. And look, I got a long way to go. Is one, get a coach, and two, stay coachable. And I know we both have um, a, a great mentor in common in the great Nick Morgan, who uh, has taught many great pillars about the speaking industry. But I'll tell you about an experience that was very humbling, but um, I stayed open to the possibilities. And this was about. Uh, a year and a half ago, um, Nick was very generous in his introductions with speaker bureaus. And there was a president at a speaker bureau that watched a video clip. And in retrospect, I, you know what? I realized it wasn't a good enough clip. And the, the rep took the call and he took it out of respect for, you know, the connection and introduction that was made. And he just said, hey, yeah, this isn't good enough. And this idea of, of, you know, pausing with silence, uh, honestly, I, I it caught me off guard. I was surprised. And then I just thought, tell me more about this. Like what is missing in your eyes? Because I have the utmost respect for what you've created and the respect you have in this industry. And he just kind of paused and he said, you know, that's interesting you asked that. Because most speakers, when I say this to them, they argue with me. And he said, here, here are my thoughts. And then he ended the call and he said, hey, um, if and when this turns around and there's some business we can do together, uh, don't mind me if I come back to you and we could book something. And I thought, what a great opportunity to actually just learn and check the ego. And what did I do? I went back to my mentor and I said, you know what? I got some feedback. How do we make it better? And that willingness to have open candor, and I had Nick in that case, just go to town on it and just say, you got to change this. Let's make this better. And what did it do? It made me a better speaker. So finding a mentor and a coach you can trust and then to staying coachable when those conversations get difficult because feedback is a gift in this industry. And half the time, pe people will avoid it. They don't want the confrontation. But when they give it to you, take it, use it to your advantage and just think about how you can level up uh, your point of service the next time you take the stage. And you know that, that's what I've aimed to do time and time again. 
What a beautiful way to wrap our conversation, Riaz. Thank, thank you for your generosity of spirit, your, your, your energetic empathy. You're making us feel like, like, like rock stars ourselves. And uh, the notion of checking your ego and, and being, getting both coached and, and remaining coachable, I think will resonate for, with our listeners for many years to come. Wishing you continued success, my friend. And uh, hopefully we'll get you back here for another discussion on Mic Drop. Amazing. Thanks, Josh. I really enjoyed my conversation with Riaz, and I feel especially connected to him after hearing his insights and perspective. Some key takeaways. Number one, we're really in a connection crisis. Keynote speakers that help forge deeper, more meaningful connections with clients and audiences alike will outperform those who show up with emotional distance. Number two, I love the concept of making other people feel famous. A great keynote speech is about the audience, not the speaker. It's about showing them what's possible and making them feel special, not relishing in our own successes. Make people feel famous. So powerful. And number three, my favorite idea from today's conversation, out-care your competition. Not out-punch or out-hustle or out-think, out-care. That idea knocked me off my chair. Talk about a mic drop moment. I really appreciated Riaz's prompt to us all to make deeper human connections as our world becomes ever more increasingly chaotic. There's simply no tech as powerful as humanity, and Riaz's success is the embodiment of this principle. Together, we learned today that every connection counts. Let's continue to forge connections in our field, and in turn, we'll continue to enjoy momentum and success together. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Mic Drop. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. If you love the show, please share with your friends and don't forget to give us a five-star review. For show transcripts and show notes, visit micdroppodcast.com. Mic Drop is produced and presented by eSpeakers. And a big thanks to our sponsor, Impact 11. I'm your host, Josh Linkner. Thanks for listening, and here's to your mic drop moment.